Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Second Kings chapter one? Second Kings chapter one. Reading again verses one to four. Where we did after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. There's a scene in the film Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I don't know if any of you have seen it, probably some of the younger ones have seen it anyway, where Indiana Jones and those with him uh, come to a room that's filled with goblets and they need to decide which of these goblets is the Holy Grail. And the only way that they will find out is by drinking from it. And they're told to choose wisely because the true grail will bring them life, but the other goblets, these false grails, will take life from them. And one of the men steps forward, he drinks from a cup and he's instantly reduced to a skeleton, then a pile of bones, and finally a mound of dust. And the comment that the knight who is guarding the Holy Grail makes is, he chose poorly. He chose poorly. Well, this evening we're continuing our studies in the life of Elijah, and we're focusing on his dealings with a king who made some incredibly poor choices. And we're going to look at this under two headings, the, the declaration and then the demonstration. The declaration, then the demonstration. First you have the declaration. Look at verses 1 to 8. Here the author focuses on the Lord's declaration to an indifferent king. The Lord's declaration to an indifferent king. In verses 1 and 2, the author draws our attention to the accident. Now, we can begin by noting the political situation in verse 1. King Ahab is dead. In 1 Kings 22, he goes to war with the king of Syria, and he's killed in battle and buried in Samaria. The vilest toad to ever squat on the throne of Israel, as we've been saying in our series, is now gone, and his son Ahaziah reigns in his place. And following Ahab's death, the kingdom of Moab rebels. Despite Ahab's spiritual waywardness, he was a king who managed to gain a degree of political security for Israel. But his death now leaves a power vacuum that Ahaziah, his son, is able to fill. And the kingdom of Moab take advantage of this political vacuum by rebelling against Israel. We move from the political situation to the personal circumstances in verse 2. While Moab are rebelling against, Ahaziah, against Israel, Ahaziah falls through a lattice or a balcony on the upper chamber of his palace. We're not given any details about how this happened. Maybe he was drunk. Maybe he was clumsy. We just don't know. But it results in him being confined to his bed. 
And eventually he decides to send messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, to see whether or not he will recover. He realizes that his life is hanging in the balance. He is not sure whether he will live or die. And in his hour of need, he turns to this Philistine god who is based 45 miles southwest in Ekron. Then in verses 3 to 8, the author moves from the accident to the announcement. The angel of the Lord appears and speaks to Elijah, the old prophet from Tishbe, in verses 3 and 4. Elijah is told to rise, he is told to go, and he is told to meet the messengers whom Ahaziah has sent to Ekron to deliver a message for the king. And he is to begin by asking a question. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? The whole of Elijah's ministry had been one of challenging the king of Israel and the nation of Israel to see that the Lord alone is God. And so the question for Ahaziah is, why are you going to Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, for guidance? Why are you going to Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, for direction? There is a God in Israel. He is the covenant-making God. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is the Lord. So why are you not going to him? And Elijah is saying to pronounce the Lord's sentence on Ahaziah. You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. This is the Lord's prognosis concerning Ahaziah's condition. There will be no recovery for him. He is going to die. And having heard from the Lord, Elijah goes to meet the messengers of Ahaziah. The messengers then come back to the king with Elijah's announcement in verses 5 and 6. They return earlier than expected and the king asks them about this. He, he wants to know why they're here so soon. And they respond by telling him about an unnamed man of God who had appeared to them. And they proceed to relay the message that, uh, that Elijah had delivered to them for Ahaziah. The identity of this messenger is then revealed to the king in verses 7 and 8. The message that the king has just received is unpleasant. And so he asks for a description of the man who had delivered it. It's interesting to note that he's not overly concerned about what the messenger has actually said. He is far more concerned about who the messenger actually is. The messengers reply by highlighting two things that stood out about this man. He wore a garment made of hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. And after hearing that description, the king comes to the conclusion and the realization that it's Elijah the Tishbite. Perhaps he had been with his father on the occasions when Elijah had appeared to Ahab, that time in 1 Kings 18, where Elijah had stood before Ahab and said, Thus says the Lord, there will be neither rain nor dew these years except at my word. Or the occasion when Elijah had stood on Mount Carmel and confronted Ahab and the people of Israel and had said to them, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Or maybe the occasion that we looked at last week in 1 Kings 21, where Elijah had gone to Ahab in the vineyard of Naboth and had said to him that what he had done was so serious, so sinful, that he and his family would be wiped out. But even if Ahaziah had never laid eyes on Elijah himself, 
He had certainly grown up in a home, in an environment where both of his parents had maligned and badmouthed Elijah on a regular basis. They referred to him as the troubler of Israel. They referred to him as their enemy. And so when Ahaziah hears about a king who is dressed in, in this coat of hair, wearing a leather belt around his waist, it clicks right away that it is Elijah the Tishbite. It is Elijah, the enemy of his father. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see how indifferent a person can be to the Lord, even in a crisis. That's what these verses are showing us, just how indifferent to the Lord a person can be, even in a crisis. That's what we see in Ahaziah. The political situation is concerning, but his personal circumstances are even more concerning. And in this unsettling season, the Lord has given him an opportunity to turn to him rather than to the gods of his father and his mother. You see, the Lord could have killed him on the spot. The Lord could have wiped him out the moment he fell from that lattice. But the Lord has given him a window of repentance. The Lord has given him a time for reflection. The Lord has given him an opportunity to call on his name. And Ahaziah treats the Lord with complete and utter indifference. And he goes in the opposite direction down to Ekron and to Baalzebub, the God of the Philistines. And you know, friends, there is a lesson for ourselves. C.S. Lewis famously wrote that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Paul Tripp speaks about the Lord's uncomfortable grace. Dale Ralph Davis often refers to the Lord's severe mercy. Sometimes the Lord decides that a crisis is the best means of waking a person up, calling them to himself. And you know, friends, one of the greatest tragedies is when we see just how indifferent a person can be to the Lord, even in the crisis that they are going through. One of the clearest pictures and evidences of this this indifference to the Lord in a crisis, I would say, has been the response of our political leaders during this COVID pandemic. We've been told that shutting shops, shutting businesses, shutting stadiums, shutting cinemas, shutting schools, and shutting churches is the answer, even calling the church non-essential. Non-essential, and maybe that's filtered down even to some of the Lord's people who now see church as non-essential. We've been told that avoiding interaction with friends, loved ones, is the answer. Don't go and see your granny. Don't go and see your parents. Don't go and see your children. We've been told that social distancing and self-isolating and mask wearing and relentless hand washing is the answer. We've been told that being vaccinated multiple times and having umpteen vaccine passports in our phones is the answer. But the one thing that no politician has said, at least I can't see it for myself, is that we must call out to the Lord in prayer. What an insight into how indifferent people can be to the Lord, even in an unprecedented global crisis. In the 1960s, Bob Dylan sang, the times they are a-changing 
but nothing much has really changed since the days of Ahaziah. And as we consider this king's indifference, let me ask you tonight, those of you who are in this building, those who may be watching online, how are you responding to the crisis moments that the Lord may be bringing into your life? Are they drawing you to the place of looking to the Lord and calling on the Lord? Or are they driving you further and further from him? Are they driving you to something or someone else? Are they leaving you indifferent to the Lord? What are the crisis moments doing in your life then? That we move from the declaration to the demonstration. Look at verses 9 to 18. And the author now focuses on the Lord's demonstration to this indifferent king. In verses 9 to 12, we see the hostility of the first two captains. We can begin by looking at the hostility of the first captain and his men in verses 9 and 10. Ahaziah doesn't like what he's been hearing, what Elijah has just said, and so he sends one of his captains and 50 men to Elijah. He is hopeful of being able to cajole and coerce Elijah into changing the message that he has just delivered. The captain comes up to Elijah, who is sitting on a hill, and he says to him, verse 9, Man of God, come down, thus says the king. And Elijah replies by telling the captain that if he is a man of God, then fire from heaven will consume him and his men. And it happens. The fire of God comes down and it consumes this captain and his fifty. We then see the hostility of the, se of the second captain and his men. Look at verses 11 and 12. Ahaziah isn't overly concerned about what has just happened. And he sends another of his captains with another fifty men to Elijah. And this captain approaches Elijah and he's slightly more bullshy than the first captain. And he says, this is the king's order. Come down immediately. Come down quickly. Come down right this minute. And Elijah replies by telling him that if he is a man of God, then fire from heaven will come down and consume him and his men. And again, it happens. The fire of God comes down and it consumes this captain and his fifty. We move, though, from the hostility of the first two captains to the humility of the third captain in verses 13 to 15. The king now sends a third captain to Elijah with another 50 men, beginning of verse 13. Now, we can imagine the terror that would have filled this man's heart. It reports are filtering back to the barracks in Samaria. You can imagine the Twitter feeds going, the news feeds going, the Facebook updates and reports that are going as the news is coming back about this man of God who is calling down fire from heaven and has just extinguished, incinerated, liquidated uh, two of their captains and a hundred of their fellow comrades. And now this captain has been told to go up and deal with the prophet who is calling down the fire. And the author goes on to tell us about the man's posture. Look at verse 13 again. Like the first two captains, he comes before Elijah. But unlike the first two captains, he falls on his knees as he approaches him. He adopts a very humble, a very submissive posture. The author continues by recording the plea of this man. Look at verse 14. Like the first two captains, he refers to Elijah as man of God. But instead of demanding that Elijah come down with him, he pleads that his life and the lives of his men might be spared. 
that they might be held as precious in the sight of Elijah and his God. And he repeats that twice for emphasis. And having recorded the plea of this man, the author highlights the preservation of him and his men. Look at verse 15. The angel of the Lord speaks once again and tells Elijah to go down with this man and not to be afraid. And so Elijah goes down with this captain to the king. This captain and his men are preserved because they have thrown themselves on the Lord and his mercy. They have thrown themselves on this prophet, the bearer of the Lord's own living word. And they have lived to tell the tale. And then finally, we come to the hardness of the king. Look at verses 16 down to 18. Elijah now approaches him with an announcement. Verse 16. He makes it clear that he is bringing the word of God to him. This is a word that Elijah has received from the Lord. And because the Lord has given him this word, Elijah will not be cajoled. He will not be coerced into changing it, no matter how unappealing, how unattractive, how unpalatable, how unacceptable it might be to the king and those who are with him. And he then returns to the original question that he had given to the king. Verse 16, he says, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? He is saying, don't you see, Ahaziah, there is a god in Israel, there is a living god. Do you not see this? The Lord is asking you, Ahaziah, he is challenging you. Do you see that he is the living god? And having asked the question, he repeats the Lord's sentence, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And we move from this announcement to its aftermath in verses 6, 17 and 18. We read that the king died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Some scholars estimate that about a year, maybe even more than a year, could have passed between Elijah's declaration, verse 16, and Ahaziah's death, verse 17. And in all that time, nothing is said. There is no remorse. There is no repentance. There is no regret. There is no, there is no deathbed conversion for Ahaziah. Ahaziah remains hardened to the Lord to the very end, to the bitter end. And following his death, we read that this childless king's brother, Jehoram, became king in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat of Judah. It's quite confusing when you've got two kings, one king of Israel called Jehoram and the other king of Judah called Jehoram, and they're both reigning at the same time, but that's what's going on. And the author concludes by telling us that the rest of his acts are recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see the Lord proving that he is God. That's the first thing that's drawn out here. The Lord proving that he is God. That is what he is demonstrating to Ahaziah. Ahaziah had been treating the Lord with this callous indifference, even in the greatest crisis of his life, as his kingdom is in upheaval, as his life is hanging in the balance, and now the Lord destroys two of his captains and a hundred of his soldiers to demonstrate to Ahaziah that he is the living God, 
He is the God who can send fire from heaven. Dilralf Davis makes the point that in 1 Kings 18, the Lord powerfully demonstrated that he was God by sending fire from heaven. That was an event that Ahaziah would have either seen or heard about. And when Ahaziah is sick, he doesn't turn to this God. He turns to Baalzebub, the God of Ekron. And Davis writes, what do you do when someone is so dense, so thick, that they don't grasp what the fire of 1 Kings 18 means? You send more fire. And there is a lesson for ourselves, friends. This sermon series has been about Elijah, but I hope as we've gone through it, we've also seen, and maybe primarily seen, that it's about the God of Elijah. And over these studies, we've seen him demonstrating the fact that he is the living God again and again and again. And the question that I have to ask you tonight, friends, is do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that he is the living God? Or are we living perhaps as practical atheists where we give him little attention apart from a passing and respectful nod on a Sunday and that is it? Are we living, friends, as if there is no God in Scotland? As if there is no God in Lewis? As if there is no God in Stornway? As if there is no God in our homes? But as we consider these verses, we can also see the penalty that awaits those who remain hostile and hardened to this God. That is what he demonstrates to Ahaziah. He tells him that he will die because he has been indifferent to him. And he then consumes his captains and their men with fire as a picture of what will happen to Ahaziah if he remains hostile and hardened to the living God. And again, friends, there is a lesson for ourselves. The fiery destruction of these men in this chapter is a demonstration, a picture of the penalty that awaits all those who remain opposed to the Lord. Jesus spoke about the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels where he will send those whom he doesn't know. The writer to the Hebrews spoke about the fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the Lord's enemies. Jude, the brother of Jesus, speaks about the punishment of eternal fire for all those who do not believe. And John, John, the, 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 the apostle of love, the beloved disciple, speaks about a lake of fire into which everything that is opposed to the Lamb is eventually thrown on the last day. These are very solemn truths. And the Lord gives them to us as a solemn warning about the penalty that awaits all those who remain hostile, hardened to the living God. But you know, friends, as we consider these verses, we can also see the preservation that awaits those who humble themselves before this Lord. That's what he demonstrates to Ahaziah. He tells him that he will die because he has been indifferent to him. But he then spares this third captain and his 50 men as they humbly cry out to him for mercy. And what is so heartbreaking in all of this is that this is the Lord showing Ahaziah, shouting to Ahaziah that if he 
humbles himself like this captain and his men, then he too might be spared. He too might live. But Ahaziah refuses. Ahaziah lies in his deathbed, unbelieving, unconverted, unfaithful to the very end. And there is a lesson, friends, for ourselves. The Lord, as we saw last week, is a God who is full of compassion. There's a lovely story told about Andrew Boner speaking with uh, Robert Murray McShane. And, and they were discussing what they were preaching on on the Sunday. But like myself and Murdo Campbell and Barvis, we have a wee debrief on Monday mornings. And we just uh, kind of lick our wounds and say, right, come on, we can, we can face another week as ministers. And... Uh, and they were discussing together what uh, they had been preaching on. And, and Andrew Boner said to Robert Murray McShane that he had been preaching on hell. And Murray McShane said, did you preach it with tears? Did you preach it with tears? And you know, friends, that is how it is with the Lord. He takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. He delights in granting eternal life even to the undeserving and at the cross, we see the lengths that he will go to in order to save his people. At the cross, he receives the fire of divine judgment in the place of his people. At the cross, he becomes the burnt offering for those who are hostile and hardened to him. At the cross, he cries out, I thirst, as he experiences that hellish torment in place of his people. That is the wonder of the gospel. That is the glory of the gospel. And now, friends, he leaves us with a choice. We can choose to approach him on our knees, saying, let my life be precious in your sight, or we can remain indifferent to him. We can choose to humble ourselves before him, knowing that he exalts the humble, he lifts up the humble, he gives grace to the humble, or we can remain hostile and hardened to him. We can, and friends, I do not say this lightly, I do not say this flippantly, we can choose to bow before the Lord, or we can choose to be burned up by the Lord. What choice have you made? What choice have you made? What choice are you making as you leave this building tonight or as you turn off your laptops or whatever other device you may be watching this service on? Have you, have you chosen wisely? Or like Ahaziah, have you made a very poor choice up until this moment? Can I say to you tonight, friend, that if you have been making a poor choice up until this moment, there is still time to change direction. There is still time to humble yourself before the Lord. There is still time to call out to him, let my life be precious in your sight. There is still time. But can I say to you tonight, friend, make sure you're in time. Ahaziah had a year, a year and a half, but he made no good use of the time. And I hope and pray, friends, that that would not be true of anyone in or connected to the High Free Church.